I have a, I have a short word today, or maybe short. I'll try to make it short because I know I'm, I'm hungry just like y'all are. Uh, but one of the things that I love about this time of year is, is during harvest and, and things like that, is getting to sit in line at the elevator in the mornings. You get some good reading time and, and praying time in at the elevator in the mornings. And I was, I, and I was sitting in line a few weeks ago, and I've uh, been trying to read through the Bible in a year. Uh, I'm behind. I'm in Nehemiah. Uh, so yeah, I'm way behind. But I, I didn't start till like June, so I don't know. Maybe I'm not that. I don't know. But I was sitting in line at the elevator. I was just starting in Nehemiah chapter 1. And I was sitting there for a while, and I read through like the first eight chapters or so. And the trucks in line in front of me were moving. They were moved up. And I, I, wasn't, I was trying to finish the chapter I was on before I moved up, so I didn't lose my spot, you know. And I hear this voice behind me, this guy saying, why ain't this guy moving? And, and I, I, let me see what's going on. And I see this guy walking up to my door in my, in my mirror. And he opens my door and says, your truck broke down? What are you doing? I said, I'm trying to read my word, man. He said, oh, oh I'm sorry. Uh, he said, what you reading? <laughs> I said, I'm, read, I'm reading the Nehemiah. He said, Nehemiah. He said, oh, I love Nehemiah. He said, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 27b. I said, oh, okay. So I, went, I flipped over to Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 27, and I started reading it. And I read it to him. He's like, he kind of nodded his head. looked kind of confused, though. And he said, that's it. That's it. And he walked back to his truck and came back a minute later and said, that ain't right. Let me see that. And he, and he, so here we are sitting at the elevator. I'm sitting in my seat with my phone out trying to find this verse he's looking for. And he's standing on the first step, the climbing 18-wheeler, with my Bible in his hand, his reading glasses on, trying to find it in my Bible while we're sitting in line. And he can't find it. He said, well, I'm going to look it up. I'm going I'm I'm to come find you. So I said, all right. I said, what does it have to do with it? He said, it talks about a God who's ready to pardon. I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll look for it too or whatever. So I start Googling, and I find it. And I go back to him. I said, Nehemiah 9.17. He said, that's it. That's it. And I read it to him. He said, that's, that's the one right there. He's a God ready to pardon. And I've been stuck there ever since. It's been like three weeks. So I've been stuck on Nehemiah chapter 9 for like the last three weeks, just reading it over and over and over again. And when Jessica told me I was preaching today, or she needed me to preach today, then I knew what I was preaching on. I just had to get it. So I'm going to start out with that story. I'm going to start out in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17, the second half of the, ch- of the verse, and it says, But thou art a... I'm sorry, guys, I'm, I apologize real fast. I read the King James Version. So, I'm sorry. Hang with me. All right, so it says, But thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and forsookest them not. I like that word, forsookest forsookest them not. And we'll get there in a minute, but I'm going to kind of break this thing down and we'll see how it goes. All right, so first off, it says, that are our God ready to pardon. Ready to pardon. So I was like, well, what, what, is, what does ready mean? Well, I looked up the Webster's definition. And ready has a few definitions, but one is immediately available. Immediately available. And another one is prepared for immediate use. So God has made our, his pardon immediately available. He's made his pardon prepared for immediate use. All right? So another thing I need to know, what does it mean to be pardoned? You know, we know, we hear about people getting pardoned all the time. What does it mean to be pardoned? So to pardon someone is to excuse an offense without a penalty. So in, in, in other words, God has excused our sin without a penalty. God has excused our, 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 our sin and he's made that, that pardon available now. Right now, we can have that pardon. He's ready. He's ready to give it to us right this second. 
So God has excused our sin without a penalty, and God has made this pardon immediately available. He's ready. He's ready. He's ready right now. Right now, God's ready to pardon you if he hasn't pardoned you already. God's ready to pardon you. He's, he's done all that he needs to do for that pardon. He sent that in the form of his son, Jesus, who came down to earth, fully God, fully man. And Jesus became that spotless lamb, that sinless sacrifice. He lived this life without a blemish, without a blemish, without a spot. I can barely go an hour without a blemish or a spot. He went 30-some-odd years without a blemish or a spot. But God, but Jesus became that sinless sacrifice. He came to earth and lived without sin. But you know what God did? Even though he's without sin, God placed all sin on him. One of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he has made him, for God has made Jesus to be sin for us, even though he knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God through Christ. So even though Jesus came to this earth and Jesus lived his entire life without sin, God put all sin on him so that we didn't have to. That's the pardon right there. The pardon that God's given us is his son. And he took our sin, my sin, your sin, your grandparents' sin, your grandkids' sin. He took all sin and placed it on Jesus. And Jesus bore that weight and carried that sin to the cross and now we can be made righteous through him. So God made a way. God sent his son. God's placed people in our lives like Marty and, and Tina. God's placed people in our lives to, to, to point us towards him, to lead us towards him. You know, Marty and Tina have had a great influence on my life. And because of them, I, I started reading Christian books and stuff. And I, I discovered this guy who's... His name's A.W. Tozer. I don't know if you've ever read A.W. Tozer. Get ready if you do, though. But I discovered this guy named A.W. Tozer, and through looking up A.W. Tozer, I discovered this man named Leonard Ravenhill. And through Leonard Ravenhill, I discovered people like Jonathan Edwards and Charles Spurgeon and all these old dead preachers from years ago. And they have had such a profound impact on my life and on my walk and on my beliefs and the things that I do that, you know, I could never, they, they've changed me. They changed the way that I, I read. They changed the way that I, that I think about things spiritually. And that all started with, with him being faithful and him reading these books and, and showing them to me. And then somehow or another, our paths crossed, and I dove into this long line of old dead guys, and I haven't got out of it yet, and it's been, it's been, it's been years and years. <laughs> but it has such a profound impact. I mean, God placed these people in my life, these things in my life, to lead me and guide me closer to him. He's given many of us talents and dreams. Like, it's hard to beat the sound of Ian McNamara singing, Though He Slay Me, on stage. That's, that's hard to beat. He, but he's given people talents and dreams, not to use for our glory, but to use for his glory. God did not give anyone the talent to sing so they could sing worldly songs about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. He gave them those talents so they could glorify him and bring honor to him. That's why he gave us those things. That's, that's what we're here for, is to bring honor and glory to him. So he's made a way for us. And he's given us all these things to, to, to glorify him and lead us closer to him. And then another thing God does is God draws us to him. You know, the Bible says that there's no one who seeks after God. That we can't come to God unless he first comes to us, unless he first draws us. So he, sent, he, he places us in, in places like this church today. 
I don't care who you are or what you think your, your status is spiritually. You're not here by accident. You're here because God placed you here. There's something that's going to be said today, either by me or maybe it's already been said by Tyler or Marty or somebody else. But something is going to be said to you today that's going to speak to you in a profound way. So God's placed you here today. God's, God's placed us and he draws us through church, through people, through his word. He draws us through the cross. In John 12, 32, the Bible, Jesus says, If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. That very act right there of Jesus going up on that cross was, in fact, God drawing all men to himself. He's, he, he's performed the act. He's done the drawing. And now he uses vessels like me or Marty or Tyler or someone else to, to preach that word to us. And through our preaching that word or preaching the cross, preaching Christ crucified, then he draws us to him even more to a point of repentance, to a point of where we can turn from our sin and turn towards him. Another thing God does in his, uh, you know, his ready to pardon us. He does a lot of things, but he, he, he protects us. God protects us. See, God protects us because God longs for all to come to him. I was, Jessica was listening to a, I can't remember her name, right? Priscilla Schreier message one, one night when I got home from work. I always have trouble with that last name. It gets me. And I, and I missed most all the messages, but I came home at, towards the end of it, and she was talking about ages and people. And she said, you know, if you're 50, but you're going to live to be 100, well, you're pretty young. Pretty young, right? But if you're 18 and you're only going to live to 30, well, you're pretty old. And that, that stuck with me. That stuck with me because one of the, I do youth, if you didn't know, I do youth. And one of the biggest draws, one of the biggest hindrances to youth following God is time. It's time. They all say they have more time. They got, you know, they're 16, 17. I got 75 years before I'm going to die. I can, you know, I can live my whole life, get all my fun out of my system, do what I want to do. I know better. I'll come to God later. And that hinders them. But here's the thing. No one knows how much time they have. Nobody knows. I ask them fairly regularly, regularly, having trouble talking today. I ask them pretty often. <laughs> That's better. Pretty often. I ask them pretty often. How many of y'all know someone your age that's died? Whether it be from an accident or whether it be from something like suicide or whatever it is. How many of you know someone your age who's passed on? These are teenagers. You know, seventh grade to twelfth grade, and everyone on raised their hand. Everyone on raised their hand. There was a young man in Hamburg just a few weeks ago who died with a full wither accident. Right? It happens all the time. You know, I, I'm 31 now, but there's two or three people in my grade that died when I was in school. Like, it happens all the time. But they're so confident they have all this time to get out their wildness and craziness and live the way they want to live, and then come to God later. But no one knows the day or the hour. Nobody knows when their last moment is. So what if while you're waiting for this time, you're waiting to get all this fun out of your system, what if your time runs out then? What if your time stops then? You know, in Psalm 139, verse 16, the Bible says, Your eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned when as yet there was none of them. I'm sorry, that's King James. Let me translate that for you a little bit. Most of the other versions say, 
All my days were written in your book before I ever lived one. So think about that. No matter how old you are sitting here today, think about that. Every day of your life was written down in God's book before you were ever took a breath, before you were ever born, before you were ever a molecule in your mother's womb. Every day of your life was written down already. So what if you only have a couple of days left? You don't know how many days you have left, but God knows how many days you have left. And see, and God protects us. God protects us in this life. He gives us opportunity after opportunity to come to know him, to be exposed to, to people who know him, and to be exposed to the things about him, to draw us closer to him. He protects us in, these, in this life for those moments. But one day that protection runs out, and we don't know when that day may be. You may be 30. You may be 104. You may be 21. You may be 15. You don't ever know when that hour is going to run out. And this is something that's been becoming more real in my life, the more I think about it is, that is why it's so important, the image that we portray. If I say I'm a Christian, if I say that I'm a a, a tool, an instrument to be used by God, then I ought to live like one. That means every word that I speak ought to be filtered through Christ first. It means every thought that I think ought to be filtered through Christ first. Because God forbid, if I meet someone on the street and I say, I don't know, I throw out a dirty joke or something, and give them the wrong image of what God is and what God allows, and that be their last day on earth. And I gave them the wrong impression of what it meant to be a Christian. Gave them the wrong excuse, of, of, gave them an excuse for why they didn't have to, to follow what God says because of my own selfish actions. No one knows how many days they have left. But God protects us because God wants everyone to come to him. Second Peter 3, 9. I, I told Marty earlier, there's, this is fifth, sixth time I've preached. I'm not really sure. I haven't kept count. But I think in every message I've used this verse. Second Peter 3, 9. In every message I've used First John 2 and 2. We'll get there in a minute. It's, it's in here too. But Second Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. But as long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God longs for all to come to repentance. He, he won't, doesn't want anyone to perish in sin. He longs for all to come to him. And this is something that's been working on me because God wants us. Think about that for a second. God wants you. God wants me. He wants us. He doesn't need us, but he wants us. I asked my wife the other day, I said, what means more to you, to be wanted or to be needed? Think about it. Would you rather be wanted or be needed? Because you can be needed, but not wanted. But God wants us. He wants us. He wants to pardon us. He wants to walk with us. He, he always has. He's always wanted us. Even in the beginning, God wanted man. So if you go back, you know, to the very beginning of the Bible, about Genesis chapter 3, you find Adam and Eve, they've just eaten this, this fruit, this apple or whatever you call it, want to imagine that it is. But they have this fruit that they're not supposed to eat. The one rule God gave them, they could not follow it. So they ate this fruit. 
when you find them. Their eyes are open. They now have shame. They're naked. They're, they're shame. They make coverings for leaves, and then they hear something in the garden. They hear God. So they hear the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, 8. So they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. They hear God, so they hide. They've just sinned, and now they're hiding from God. But what's God doing? God's seeking them out. He's looking for them. He wants them, and he's trying to find them. Of course, this is God. He knows what they've done. He knows what you've done. He knows what I've done. Even when nobody's around, he knows exactly what you've done or haven't done or what you've been doing. Even if you think you're by yourself, he's there. He knows what they've done. He knows where they are. They're not hiding. He knows exactly what tree they're behind and where they are. He he knows. He's God. But he wants them. He wants them anyway. It says in verse 9, The Lord God called unto Adam and said, Where are you? God is searching. See, God was ready to pardon Adam. God wanted Adam to come to him. He wanted Adam to come and fall at his feet and repent and confess and say, look, I messed up. I, you only gave me one rule. I had this whole garden to myself. I could eat anything I wanted to eat but this one tree, and I couldn't even obey that rule, and I ate it, and I messed up, and I'm sorry. Forgive me, please. That's all, that's all God wanted Adam to do was come to him and repent. That's all God wants us to do is to come to him and fall on our knees and repent and say, God, I'm sorry. I'm a sinner and I realize that now, and I'm in need of a Savior. I'm in need of this pardon that you're, so, that you're trying to give away that most people won't take. I need it. And I'm turning from my sin, and I'm turning towards you. Help me. And that's all God wants Adam to do, but Adam hides. Adam runs from God. Not only does Adam hide, Adam tries to cover his sin. He tries to blame his sin on Eve. You know, like most men. Well, this, this woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit, so I ate it. So what do you do whenever you, whenever you sin? Do you blame on your wife? No, I'm just kidding. I don't blame on my wife. I'm the one that messes up all the time. But how do we react when we fall? How do we react when we sin? Do you run to the one who's ready to pardon you, who's wanting to pardon you, who's gracious and merciful, or do you run from him? Think about it. Where do we run from him? Most of the time we run from him. But he's gracious and merciful. He's ready to part. He's ready to forgive us. The Bible says that he's full of grace and his mercy is new every morning. He's ready for us, but we run from him. God is waiting on us. He has already done everything, and all we have to do is come to him. All we have to do is come to him. But too many times we only come to God when we need something from God or when we want something from God. Because, see, God wants us, but we need God. We need God. Think about that. God extends grace to all people, a measure of grace to all people. Are you breathing right now? It's only by the grace of God. Did you wake up this morning? It's only by God's grace that you're awake. It's only by God's grace that you're here. It's only by God's grace that you'll make it to this afternoon and you'll lay down the night and go back to sleep. It's only by God's grace. Because God gives grace to all. 
Because without God's grace, we would be thrown into the pits of hell where a sinner is supposed to go. But God gives us grace to get through the day. That's part of that protection that he gives us. It's to get through each and every day. To come, to have that moment where we can come to know him and trust him. But we only want God when we need something from him. When the doctor gives us a bad diagnosis. Whenever we lose a loved one or a friend or whatever happens. Then we want God. And then we come to God and we, we, we beg God for mercy. We beg God to help us or to help our friend. And because God loves us so much, many times he'll answer those prayers. Even though he knows that when we get that healing we're so seeking for, or we get that mercy we're so begging for, that we'll be good and we'll be on fire for a day or two or a month. But then that feeling will begin to fade. And we won't want God anymore. He'll be back to just wanting him when we need something. Those feelings, those, those moments fade many times. But what we fail to realize is that we need God all the time. We need God every day, every moment, every hour, every breath, every moment. That's God's grace working in our lives. That's God's grace allowing us to live. God allows us to live only through his grace and mercy. And every day that we're not cast into judgment is only by grace and mercy, by his grace and mercy. You may ask why I had this rope up here. I was talking uh, about those old dead preachers earlier. But one of them was named Jonathan Edwards. Have you ever heard the name of Jonathan Edwards? He was a peer. He lived like in the 1700s. But he did a message, a very famous message, called Sinners in the, Hand of an Angry, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. This sparked one of the great awakenings. I was telling, me and Marty were talking about it a little bit earlier, and could you imagine this guy, very monotone voice in a candle-lit room, reading his script word for word off a page like this with a candle held up. Monotone, I said, it's awful to hear it, listen to. But he so moved the people, the Spirit of God so moved the people, they cried out in agony, and they were wrapped on the floor, holding on to the bottoms of the chairs and the pillars in the room so that they didn't fall into judgment because the Spirit of God moved so, so strongly among the people. And in that message, he talks about our human condition, our, the fragility of life. And he says, our life is like hanging from the bottom of this rope. Not much holding that, is there? We're hanging from the bottom of this rope over the pits of judgment, it says. And at any moment, this rope could break and we could fall in for all eternity. So think about this for a second. We're, we're holding on to the bottom of this rope right over over, judge, over the judgment seat, over the pits of hell. And God's standing there above us with his hand out, like, just take my hand. Just take my hand. And many people will never reach up and take his hand. They'll say, let me just hold on, let me just hold on down here a little bit longer. Let me just stay down here just a, a little bit longer, just another day or another year or another, another month, whatever. Let me hold on down here just a little bit longer to get this out of my system. But too many times while we're holding on just a little bit longer, that rope breaks. And all is lost. Another example I always love to use is the example of Jesus standing in between. It's a picture of Jesus standing. Arms stretched wide, like on a cross. With one hand, he's pleading for the lost sinner to come to him. He's, he's pleading for the lost man to come accept this pardon that he's offering us. And with another hand, he's holding back the wrath of God. 
And he's, doing, he's begging for, for men to come. He's begging for us to come because he wants us to come. We realize that one day that time runs out. And one day Jesus will drop both his hands and he'll step back. And there'll be no more coming. There'll only be wrath released on the world. He's there and he's provided the way. He's done all that he has to do for us. And all we have to do is accept it. All we have to do is come to him and surrender to him. But many times we're too stubborn and headstrong to, to do it. We think we can fix it on our own. We think we can do everything on our own. And many times we play around just, just a little too long. That verse also says that God is slow to anger and of great kindness. Slow to anger. Just look at the world around us. Look at all the things going on in this world around us in this country today. America today, I have to imagine, probably makes Sodom and Gomorrah look pretty tame. Because there's a bunch, we're not going to get into details, but there's a bunch of craziness going on. But yet, where are we? We're still here. We're still here. And why are we still here? Because we're still here because God is slow to anger. If I was God, I'd have thrown us away a long time ago, probably. But he hasn't. He hasn't. And not only has he not, he, he's, he's still ready to pardon us. He still wants to pour his kindness out on us. And he blesses us. Even in the middle of a twisted and perverted culture that we live in, he still blesses us. Not only spiritually, financially, physically. He blesses us so much in, in ways that we take so for granted. And he still is offering grace and mercy to anyone who will come to him. Why? Because he wants us. He wants us, and he's ready to pardon us. No matter, I've never, I don't understand, the measure that God wants us is hard for me to understand. Probably not for my wife, because I want her all the time, and she, she's always shooing me away. <laughs> but think about it. That's how much God, God wants us. I just, I can't get over, he, he wants us. No matter where you've been, no matter what path you've gone down, no matter what you've done, he wants you. I remember hearing the story uh, years and years ago when I first got saved. I don't remember who it was, or what, but they were talking about how their grandfather was in World War II and how he hated Nazis. He hated Nazis. Like, he would just kill Nazis for fun if he saw them on the street. Like, hated them. But he said that after the war was over, he got commissioned to work in one of these prison camps with the Nazi soldiers. And he said that there were three, they had three of the highest ranking Nazi officials in this, in this prison. And he said that somewhere at this time, the grandfather got saved and he started preaching the gospel to these Nazi officials. He said like three of the top five ranking Nazi officials gave their life to Christ while they're in this camp. Think about that. They killed millions of people. Millions. Millions. And they're in heaven, worshiping at the feet of Jesus. That's how much God wants us. That doesn't excuse our sin. We have no excuse for our sin. But he wants us. And he's ready to pardon us and ready to forgive us if we surrender to him and we allow him to, to come into our hearts and lead us and guide us. He wants us. That's crazy to me that he wants us that much.
But he extends grace and mercy to any who would come because he sent Jesus for the sins of all men. So now we're going back to 1 John 2, 2. You might get these verses every time I preach. I'm like six for six so far. All right. So 1 John 2, 2 says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. For the sins of the whole world. So he sent his son to die for the sins of the whole world. Every sin, every committed, he covered. So God is ready to pardon us. But are you ready to come to him? See, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And if any come to God, then they must come by Jesus. You have to come through Jesus. But when they come, God is faithful to his promises. He's ready to pardon them. He's gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger, and he's abounding in great kindness. And he will never forsake you. That's my favorite part of the verse. Nehemiah 9, 17, it says, Thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness. And he forsookest them not. Forsookest. I like that word. What was the word you said that one time? I can't remember what it was. Oh, I'll have to find it. You, you said you didn't know if it was a word, and I found it in the King James Bible, so it had to be a word. All right. He forsookest them not. So what does it mean to forsake something? When you forsake something, it means that you renounce it or you turn away from it. Aren't you glad that no matter how many times you mess up, God doesn't forsake you? He doesn't turn his back on you? He's only forsaken one person, and that was his own son, when he turned his back as he died on the cross. But Jesus cried out, why have you forsaken me? That's because he couldn't bear it. I always, always believe that's because he couldn't bear to watch Jesus suffer anymore. He couldn't bear to watch someone so innocent suffer for so many. But he did. He allowed him to. Because he wanted us. He wants you. He wants me. He wants us all. But to fully grasp this measure of God forsaking, not forsaking us. I'm sorry. I got to read some more verses out of chapter 9. Several verses. So hang with me. All right. These aren't King James, though. So you're welcome. All right. So we're going to start in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 9. And they're praying to God and talking about all God's done for them. He says, you saw the afflictions of our father in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. Talking about God. Then you, God, performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly towards us. And you made a name for yourself as it is this day. You divided the sea before them so they passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground. And their pursuers you hurled into the depths like a stone into raging waters. And with a pillar of cloud, you led them by day, and with a pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. Then you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. You gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger. You brought water out from a rock for them for their thirst, and you told them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. That's through 16 right there, then verse 17 starts. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous works, which you did, which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Think about this. He lays out everything God did for them. God came to them. 
He, he heard their cry. He heard their, their, their pleas, their sorrows, and the slavery. And he heard them, and he came down to them, and he delivered them. He, threw, he did all these miraculous plays on Egypt. He did all these great things. He finally gets them out of Egypt after they kill all the firstborn with the Passover. He gets them all out of Egypt. He takes them to the Red Sea, and then he splits the sea. Splits the sea. And inst- almost instantly, the sea is split, the ground is dry, and they, what, two million people, I think, cross on dry ground. And then what do you see? You see Pharaoh and his chariots riding across getting stuck in mud. So what was just dry two seconds ago is now muddy. And then the walls of water come crashing down and their enemy is drowned in the sea. And they're delivered. And not only that, but then he gives them a pillar of cloud to lead them by the day and a pillar of fire to lead them by night. And then not only that, he brings bread down every morning from heaven to feed them. Oh, when they whine about being thirsty, he smacks the rock and brings water forth out of a rock to give them something to drink. And he does this every day. And then what happens? They turn their back on him. And they pick someone to take them back to slavery in Egypt. Is that us? That's me. That's me. No matter how much good God does for me, the first chance I get, I want to go back to slavery in Egypt. Because slavery is comfortable. Slavery is easy. Ain't so much work being slaves. It's hard to live right. It's hard to make that hard choice of forsaking yourself and denying your flesh every day. That's hard. But going back to slavery and just giving in to all these things the world has to offer, that's easy. That's easy. So it says they, they elected a leader to take them back to slavery in Egypt, and that's where, that's where, that, that's where we started out. But you are a God ready to pardon. But you are gracious and compassionate, but you are slow to anger and abounding in kindness, and you forsake us not. Forsook us not. But it, does, it doesn't stop there. He, he, it says that he's slow in anger and abounding in kindness, and he forsakes them not. Even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, this is your God, Israel. This is who delivered you out of Egypt. He did not forsake them in the wilderness. No matter what they did, the pillar of cloud of day never left them. The pillar of fire by night never left them. The manna never stopped falling. The water never stopped flowing. He gave them your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. Indeed, for 40 years you provided for them in the wilderness. Their clothes did not grow old, and their feet did not swell. So for 40 years they wore the same clothes pretty much, and their clothes never wore out. For 40 years, they wandered around the desert, and their feet never got tired. For 40 years, food from heaven came down every morning. For 40 years, he upheld them. And they turned their back on him countless times. They still turned their back on him. We still turn our back on him. If you finish the chapter, there's there's several other instances where he talks about them turning their back on him. And so he gives them into their, their enemies' power over them. But he says, I heard, but then they cried out. He says, I heard their cry, and I sent them saviors. And they do it again, and it says again, I heard their cry, and I sent them saviors. I didn't put these in my notes, guys. I'm sorry. It says in verse 27, it says in verse 26, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against God and cast his law behind their backs and slew his prophets, which testified against them to turn them back to God. Therefore, God delivered them into the hand of their enemies, 
who vexed them and in the time of their trouble, when they cried out unto God, you heard them from heaven. And according to your manifold mercies, you gave us them saviors who saved them out of the hand of their enemies. And you find that story in the Bible over and over and over and over and over again. Because God will not forsake them. God will not forsake his people. And if you're in this church today and you're blood-bought and you've accepted Christ into your heart, then you're a part of his people. And he will not forsake you. He will not let you fall. Because he can't go back on his promises. His word says that if he's began a good work in you, that he will see it to completion. He's began a good work in me. And she'll tell you that I've tried to stop that work many times. Many, many times. I've tried to stop that work. But every time, it says that he'll bring it to completion. If he started it, what's the old saying? If he brings you to it, he'll bring you through it. If he started it, he's going to finish it. And he promises to do that because he hears our cries and he hears our pleas. He doesn't turn a deaf ear to desperate prayers. One of my old favorite preachers, I probably need to wrap this up, don't I? I'm almost there. I'm sorry, guys. But one of my old favorite preachers, Leonard Raven, who always said, he has this famous saying that he always says, that God doesn't answer prayer. God answers desperate prayer. God answers desperate prayer. And he always reverences Hannah when she's begging for a child. You know, she prays, if you give me a child, I'll give him back to you. And then she gets pregnant with Samuel. He talks about Rachel when she goes, to, I think it's Rachel, when she goes to Isaac and says, give me a children or I'll die. I believe God will move his will in the answers to desperate prayer. Rebecca prayed, give me children or I die. He gave her a child, but she lost her life in the process. Maybe it wasn't her will for God to give her a child, but she begged and begged and pleaded, and God gave her what she wanted. Because God answers desperate prayers. But God hears our desperate pleas. Even in our sin, God hears our desperate pleas for help. God hears our desperate pleas for deliverance. God hears our desperate pleas for mercy. He hears us. He hears our desperate prayers for our family, for our friends, for our loved ones. And he will not forsake us. Because, again, if he's began a work in you, he will see it to completion. So he is a God ready and willing to pardon us. He is a God gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in kindness. And he will not forsake us. He'll never forsake us. If y'all would, stand up with me.